podcast listeners. If you hear my voice right now, I need you to do something for me. I want you to take out your phone or on your computer, go to Apple Podcasts, search for Ask Your Old Head Podcast. You'll see my, my logo, my little picture, my little image there. Find the show. Please rate and write a review. It's a small thing, but it helps others find this work and find what I'm doing here. And it really, really matters, uh, as small as that may seem. So if you could please do that uh, before we get into the show, I much appreciate it. Thank you for listening. Let's get into it. Peace. Peace. I'm Justin. Justice Raji. Oh, man. It's been a couple weeks. Yeah, yeah. Life calls, summertime calls. Yeah, yeah. So, um, well, let's just get into it. So, uh, recently, the um, it's been a, a lot of hubbub, a parlay, a conversation, what have you, around um, the Saudi government and the Live Live Golf Tournament, and and it's it's a real interesting dynamic there's a good pretty good freakonomics episode about sports watching um i think the thing that's better in in that actual interview is a, a guy that's a journalist i think he's written like a biography of muhammad bin salman or something about them so he kind of knows that world really good and so that, that dude was actually pretty insightful but generally uh for those who don't know and i don't necessarily follow golf but um, if you've been nibbling around in here, so there's a PGA tour um, and like a lot of our American sports leagues, you know, there's these sort of quasi nonprofit entities that operate a contracted with <laughs> a whole bunch of hoops and ladders. But the way the PGA tour works is that you are um, the chore is an entity. The golfers are, I think they're considered like contractors. Yeah. Right? And then, you know, they there's pay based on like making cuts in different you know pj sponsored events and all that type of stuff and you know um and the tour is very controlled and, and golfers you know however you feel about their their right their rights as workers um <laughs> have not necessarily enjoyed the structure or the control that they have like there's lots of restrictions to my understanding on like what other kind of tournament like you can't be on like other tours and all the type of stuff but also there's stuff like if you don't make cuts you don't make no money, which if you one of the top golfers, you know, like you probably going to make the cut most of the time. But if you are one of the, you know, other many other like pro level golfers that are trying to make it, you can enter those tournaments. And I think if you don't make it to the weekend, you don't get paid at all. And you just out of whatever money it costs you to be at that tournament. And so in any event, um, you may have seen, I guess, was that beginning this year? Phil Mickelson said the, the quiet part out loud and it was just like, yeah, I mean, you know, they're kind of wild bulls, but, you know, we try to break, I'm trying to get this money and break the PGA, so I'm, he was going to dabble with it. And then he then he went like, oh, maybe I should have said that. <laughs> went in the house. So the Live Golf Tournament is this rival um, tour that instead of, you know, basically all any, you know, pro golfer can join, it's like, like 30, their goal at least is like 30 to 50 of the best and everybody gets paid and basically you sign a contract with them and you like go participate in these tournaments. Um, those built out of the European tour. And then though there's several 
U.S. sites. And, you know, the, the, the basic rub of it all is, is that it's, you know, money from the, the crown prince and the sovereign government of Saudi Arabia, which, you know, allegedly, you know, we, we haven't good evidence, you know, recently murdered a, a critical journalist in um, Jamal Khashoggi um, uh, funding, you know, the conflict in Yemen and and generally is you know run by an autocrat that folks you know don't see as a particularly good dude you know to the degree that someone that's an autocrat could be a good dude even if they were a good dude you know what i'm saying because you're an autocrat and you you rule you rule a society uh by by single by single single point leadership but in any event saying all that to say just to get some context so so that tournament is been started and folks you know have been you know, critical and vocal about, you know, you know, those golfers that are participating in it and like the PGA is kicked. Basically, if you go in that other tournament, that other system, you can't go, you can't play the, I don't know if you can't play any PGA events, but you definitely can't play the majors. Which you can't play like the larger events, like the championships. And, yeah. 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 So, so it's a whole thing. And I know some people might be listening like, do you even play golf justice? Like, why do you, you know what I'm saying? Why do you care? Like, well, you know, it's the intersection of, you know, global business, cultures, a lot of stuff happening here. You know what I'm saying? Geopolitics and as it relates to sports. So, you know, that's that's where we want to start off this 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 morning. Um, so what, what was one of your thoughts about this whole situation? Honestly? Yeah, I mean, I think to your point, just, um, it, you know, I think it speaks to a couple of things. One. I'd look at the really interesting intersection between uh, President Biden's going over to the Middle East in general, but specifically to go meet with Saudi leaders um, as a part of this. And the reason I where I make this kind of connection is people, uh, you know, accuse them of, of sports washing. Right. And trying to get a better image for their country by doing golf tournaments, though it's kind of a challenge to me to see where you really get a better global image by sponsoring a golf tournament. Uh, I think there's a whole host of things you could probably do to be seen as better in the eyes of the world. Right. And, and it's, it's only a really American thing where we think that they're reforming the image by sponsoring a golf tournament. Right. Like, you know what I mean? So that, that, that's one thing, but the other part of it is if you assume that that's important, and then you look at how the American government has, um, the current American government, the presidential administration, has framed Saudi Arabia as a pariah and been been very specific about Saudi Arabia being a pariah state due to the the murder um, of the journalist. But then something called inflation happened, and then they had to go to Saudi Arabia to ask them to open up more oil, agree <laughs> more crude oil. Right. So the context of the President Biden going and even meeting with MBS. Right. Mm-hmm. Is you need something from them. But you call them a pariah. Right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but now you need something because gas is up. And even though we, that's not our main gas user, the reality of it is if you don't get no more gas out, people rightly or wrongly assume that it's your fault, that gas is so expensive and then they vote for somebody else. So. Yeah. The the connection to then like this idea of sports and culture and then global business and how fast, in some senses, somebody who you're not a friend with becomes someone you're a friend with relatively quickly, right? That's one thing. And then there's the, the context of, okay, if the sovereign fund is indeed, they are funding live, 
and they are funding a competition of which a few golfers have gone, right? Like some famous, some more famous golfers. And it lends itself to your original point of at the, at the, in the PGA structure, if you're good, you're going to get paid. But if you're not that good, you're not going to get paid. And a lot of golfers are saying, listen, I'm not going to go through the stress at this point in my life to worry about if I'm going to make a cut. I, I signed a contract and I am participating. So there's like this different economic model. And every time you have these kind of like disruptions of a model, right? So some way we can look at it like this is the real way and this is being funded by Saudis and Khashoggi. But then there's also the reality that golfers are saying. Is like this way is a better and easier way for me to be a golfer. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. And I think to some degree, the PGA is being a little coy and always connecting it to the sovereign fund versus also connecting it to does your model work for everybody anymore? Yeah. <clears throat> and in that sense, it's a classic business conversation. Right. Right. With with global implications, of course. But it's a classic business conversation because the question starts to be, does the model of sports as we currently understand it. Are those the models that we should have? Right. And I think that the live model adds a little Saudi flair. (laughs) Right. And a little geopolitical flair. But it does come down to that principle. Yeah. Well, the you know, it's very interesting when you think about it like i mean like we we experience sports and we i mean we just recently i think our last time we recorded spoke a little bit about the NBA finals industry ending and other things and sports in our society is a you know it's a it's a public you know sort of space holder around a lot of different you know pieces and parts in some ways you know it's they are uh especially in the united states the 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 professional like ownership of professional franchises are usually except for a few cases the like you know i'm already super rich now at least i am already super wealthy you know business person and then we buy this team and this becomes you know sort of this way we can um you know be a part of the public reality um and also you know, it's still a business, but it's not like a it's not like a business in the context of like, you know, you trying to be the number one uh lug bolt maker on planet Earth and got the most advanced lug bolt technology. Like it's like no, right. it's a it's, it right. sits in the public square. It's, it's a, it becomes a meeting and event space becomes a a transitional space amongst you know I think we, we mentioned this particularly around uh, uh what's it uh, uh Lakeup the owner of the the Warriors oh, yeah. in terms of being able to amongst your peers that are all you know super tech wealthy people go ha ha you ain't got one of these though you know what i'm saying like right right it's all these other things in it it's a show horse it's uh and then you have you know and i know other people are like no sports is about competition and character and you're like yeah the playing the sport (laughs) is about that but the other stuff in the sport and 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 you know i know there are people that you know i've i've heard and i've i've stayed away to a degree i mean i guess because other inertial factors from golf because it, it's I've I've been told that like once you start playing it actually becomes like super fun and you know you know you want to beat it and it's a really hard game to, to actually be you know to do well so I know there are like people who really like watch golf they're like you know they have a whole channel <laughs> there's people that are like yo I watch golf I know all these these players names I play golf 
the same way, you know, we might, you know, basketball or sport that we play, you know, whether recreationally or otherwise, and then you also, you know, watch the sport and enjoy the sport, right? So you had these two different things happening, but in terms of where these things sit in, in, in the global space is they are, you know, you know, in a sense, a, a vehicle for ambassadorship or connection. Um, but I, I would counter, and I think there's good points and a couple different things you'll find on this where they like from, a, from an overall sports watching perspective, you know, I mean, you know, folks, it's not a lot of times that somebody, you know, Russia and China have hosted Olympics in, in the last uh, decade, decade and a half. And our, you know, perception of their autocratic governments in no way has changed. <laughs> um, obviously, right. You know, Russia's current behavior, notwithstanding um, where. So the idea that, like, you know, we would suddenly be like, oh, man, Saudi Arabia, they host that golf tournament is great. Right. And there's so many implications, but like the idea that all of these things are. Um, like there's probably a good reason to 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 want to stay away from that league. Right. But the the just the idea that, well, he's a bad actor. So therefore, but it, it's as if we have not been in a over 70 year, I think now or more relationship with the autocratic government, <laughs> the royal family of Saudi Arabia. Around right. oil, like, like, is everyone have that, a short, that's my point? Short ass we, memory, we, right? That's my point. Like, okay, you don't want them, you don't want to take the money because it's golf, but then the United States goes over and has strategic relationships with this government. Mm-hmm. So, is it's good enough to take the gas, but not enough to play golf with them, <laughs> right? Right, like, and, and again, I'm not, you know, whether you think the live tournament is sucking the life out of the PGA or making it unfair. And again, that's a whole sports money status quo conversation, but it is very interesting how we, we can forget that in America's strategic interest, and I'm not saying nothing inherently radical here in America's strategic interest, we align ourselves with people who advance our interests regardless of their government is democratic or autocratic. Right. And, and that's just what it is. That's what has happened. It's what is happening now. Right. And, you know, the United, you know, our press can try to frame them differently, but that is often what occurs. Some of our friends are autocrats. Some of the people that we actually don't like are have republics or democracies. Mm-hmm. Right. Like it's about strategic interest, not necessarily the form of government, which I think is also a really interesting thing that I think we have to be able to have a dialogue about because we've been connected to the actual form of the government and this is not calling for autocrats but this is acknowledging that we we were framing like oh that they're autocrats versus our democracy when uh, outside of a few actors january 6th showed you mug didn't care what you voted for mm-hmm. like there was a sitting government there was a sitting president who actively tried to dissuade people in power from respecting the outcome of the uh, election. Right. And there's people who still act like it, 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 wasn't, oh, it wasn't that bad. I mean, you know, folks just had to get some stuff off their chest. Word. Right. <laughs> like, oh, that's what we're doing now? Oh, it was a dust-up. How you man say? <laughs> uh, Del Rio? It was a little dust-up. Oh, it was a dust-up? For real? This a, mug, a, a mug invading the Capitol. So I, so again, this is not one of them things, but I think it's important for us to put in context in how sports and geopolitics do connect. Yeah. An, another 
thing that I um, was just thinking about was one with MBS and Liv. Well, and also, just, I want to use soccer. Mm. Mm-hmm. I mean, royal families from Qatar and other places have invested in soccer tournaments and invested in global soccer and in and control soccer. Uh, you know, have large franchises, yeah. franchises in America. Like we should have no confusion about like where this global money comes from, because I want to share with everyone. <laughs> American money is not enough to fuel the things you see in America. Absolutely. <laughs> like, you know what I mean? Like there's not enough money in your town to fuel your sports team. Even if you think it's enough money in your town to fuel your sports team, that's not correct. There's a global, there, there's a global thing when Fenway sports, for example, controls and owns the Boston Red Sox, Liverpool, and the Pittsburgh Penguins. Mm-hmm. Right? Like, that's global capital. There's no one person sitting in Boston who had enough money in the in the treasure chest <laughs> in Boston to be able to buy the Red Sox and then buy Liverpool. Right? And so, you know, it, it brings up how do we think about the things that we're told? How do we look below it? And then, again, acknowledging... Uh, uh, global sports on the same line. Um, there was an article about Ari Emanuel, who was um, who was the brother of Ron Emanuel, who's now the uh, diplomat, the you know the ambassador, Japan, the ambassador to Japan, Japan. Mm-hmm. and his brother Zeke, and everyone knows you know. Curse you, glance at their story tells you what it tells you. But one thing that's interesting is that during the pandemic, if you think about it, there was only one form of quote-unquote sports entertainment that didn't stop it was mma mm-hmm. because they built a dome in by dubai in the yeah. uae mm-hmm. to actually keep that one sport being the only one and uh, ari Emanuel is an investor in that in mbz which is <laughs> they got mbs in saudi arabia and mbz in the united arab emirates they are big investors in MMA. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so just an interesting idea that like this sport that starts, you know, whether you say it starts in gyms in America, whether you start, it starts with jiu-jitsu, Brazilian jiu-jitsu, um, you know, regardless we, you know, you say the origin story is, that's the reason you were able, everyone was able to keep watching MMA all during the pandemic when it, in its most uh, acute forms was because of the global capital, mm-hmm. you know, and understanding these things. So we're watching, we just don't think anymore that our global sport, our like hometown sports team is like a hometown thing. And one, one more part about that is uh, recently in Pittsburgh, um, the Pittsburgh Steelers Stadium, which has been called Heinz Field since the early 2000s, is now called Acrisure sure. Field. Right. And then, you know, understandably, everybody's up in, uh, you know, everybody's boxes in a bunch about it. it you know, your mama call it Heinz. I'm going to call it Heinz type of thing. Right. Yeah. Which is a mix of classic, frankly, we can't change because we liked the old thing and we just don't like the new thing, which in American society then extends itself to a lot of stuff. Right. Yeah. We liked the way it was. 
I like the Dazzle. Why, why, why it got to be different? Why and why do it have to be different? AKA, we liked that neighborhood when it was like this. Why does it have to be different? Right? <laughs> Act for sure has nothing to do with Pittsburgh. And while that is true, besides of some relationship to Thomas Toll, who also was part of the Pittsburgh uh, Steeler ownership at some point. Oh, okay. There you go. Yeah. That's the Thomas Toll is the, uh, he's the linchpin here. Um, Cause he's the actual, he's the uh, president of the board of Akershore. Yeah. So, and that's a whole other story, but, <laughs> but the, the funny thing about it is Heinz craft, which is what it's called now makes little to nothing in this town. Right. It's all in Chicago, right? It is a figment, literally, even as a ketchup-based figment of your imagination. <laughs> ketchup and relish and mayonnaise. Like, it is not here anymore. So it just goes to show you that, like, as things have become more global, we still have this quite uh, local view of our, of our sports culture. Yeah. Well, and it's, it's an interesting nugget that taps on. Because the... I mean, especially in light of sort of the current um, conversation that has flowed out of these um, abortion laws in these states where these folks keep sort of saying out loud, like, you can't leave. You basically you can't go where you want to, which my thing is like, let me find out you trying to stop somebody from going where the hell they want to. That's ridiculous. Like, you, it's a state. I just live here, dog. Like, it's it's a it's an organizational unit. <laughs> it is not like the the. It's not the defining reality of my human existence. I will walk over there if I want to. All them lines is imaginary. So, but I'll save that for another rant. Um, the, but the idea that the way we feel, right, about spaces and cities and like, this is my part. I live in here and in Pittsburgh, you know, I I, I, I had a whole list of somebody out there like, all, you know, wrong, wrong, you know, incorrect information only, like what the hell is Acrisure and what, it is, what does it do, <laughs> right? <laughs> and, the reality is we, we whenever it is this happens with other stadiums right it becomes some company you're not familiar with you know what i'm saying or you never heard of or you don't know what they do and then it goes you know basically eventually you just forget you know you forget about it because it does it it's like it it matters but does it matter like we live in a society that is you know run and operated you know the economy, at least largely by the influence and decision-making of large corporate entities, you know, and, and I don't think, I think it's hard to actually fully grasp the scale of these entities. Like we, we think we understand them and like how much money is involved and what's happening. But I, th I think that at times, yeah, like I'd never heard of that company before they got the name of this thing, but they obviously are a big enough, whatever they are, that they could afford to pay for the name of a stadium. So Right. Like, like, you know what I'm saying? And then so even jumping back to, to the sovereign wealth fund, the Saudi Arabia sovereign wealth fund, because they're not the only sovereign wealth fund, but they're one of the biggest ones. That money is what do you think is in all these different tech companies and all kinds of stuff is got sovereign wealth money floating around in there. <laughs> they, they, they're they one of the, the biggest customers on the on the various stock exchanges. You know what I'm saying? Right. Like, Absolutely. so the idea that like, the idea that anyone's money is just sort of like, you know, even as, we're, you know, the stuff as people have been talking about what's happening with Russia, like, you know, yeah, Russia's money all over the place. Like people are like, oh, yeah, man, we don't want these oligarch to run this team in England anymore because, you know, because, you know, those bad actors, bad hombres. 
bad hombre. And but then it's like, wait a minute, man. Like he's like, you start looking around. I mean, look, the 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 the, the owner and erstwhile mighty leader of of, of Cobra Command, the Cobra Commander of the Commanders, is not is is shown to be, you know, at a minimum, terrible as it pertains to uh, proper tre- appropriate treatment of women in the workplace at a company, at a business he runs, you know, besides the stories is an old uh, sports uh, column. I used to read uh, called Tuesday morning quarterback. Shout out to that dude. Can't remember your name right now, but I used to love that column. And uh, way, way, way back. He thought about with what's the name? Uh, Snyder first, wherever he there's a park or land basically he cut down all these really old trees because he wanted to see the water better it was wildly illegal he wasn't supposed to do it he did it anyway because he had billions of dollars he didn't give a damn right like these are the people we talking about and somehow having this virtual this virtuous conversation at times where it's like man we don't know if them dudes and people is good people right so it doesn't mean that we can't be critical Right. And have a critical conversation about live golf or any other thing. But it, it it's like the, the, the larger contextual, you know, conversation is sort of like, yo, it's very it's very difficult to. To apply sort of that moral template and lens to to like what you're going to engage with and then find out that it's very hard to engage with almost anything without escaping and like actually avoid stuff like actually like yeah i don't want, I don't want my money going to you know you name it giant corporation and it's like oh wait they the ones that make them uh like they they there is three brand rebrands but it's actually all the same brand or this that i've been using because this, this is the one that helps my skin or whatever and you're like damn like i, I can't can't escape it like you can't get away and right it's um you know, it's, it was remarkable. I mean, I think the other thing that I wanted to get to that was in the Atlantic piece you sent me was just sort of the the way Boyle was making them making the journalists meet at all kind of wild hours of the day, right? <laughs> which which is totally something you do when you have all the leverage, right? You're like, yeah, I'm not available right now. Like a dude comes out, Mr. Raji will be with you momentarily. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? And then he goes out the room and you're just sitting there like, man, I wonder what, justice coming out? I mean, he said he coming. Like, you, if I have the means, you're just going to be there till I show up, right? Like, if that means two hours I come out, or if I come out in 10 minutes, what you going to do? You going to make you gonna make me show you up to come and meet you? Now, you can get up and leave, but you ain't going to get the conversation you want, right? And that's right. the, the I, you know, it's the discomforting thing about, you know, people in positions of power and leverage. And we, you know, you know, in our chat threads and, you know, at the bar, oh, man, what a jerk, like, right? But at some point, it's like, if you if you have to get something done that involves that jerk, <laughs> what are you gonna do? You know, or you just do, or you say, "Yeah, it's not gonna get done. I'm gonna walk away." You're gonna, or you're gonna engage the jerk. I mean, yeah, the, the timing is an interesting thing. I think one of the things you and I touched on earlier is that, like, we even have to be thoughtful about how we perceive time in America, right? you know, it's always something interesting when you travel abroad and realize you're watching something and like by the time the U.S. stock market opens, London has been open for six hours mm-hmm. and, and Hong Kong is already closed and about to open again, right? Mm-hmm. And so you start to realize that like even in America, everything is based on the Eastern Standard Time, right? Mm-hmm. Like 
when we try to make things make sense for the Eastern and then kind of by extent Central time, right? Yeah. Like it's always weird to me how, like, you know, if Jeopardy comes on at seven o'clock and <laughs> like America, like in East Coast, what time does it come on in, in uh, California? Like <laughs> it at four o'clock, but like, <laughs> or like how games will start at like five o'clock mm-hmm. so that they can come on at eight o'clock in the East Coast, right? So, so just this idea of time, um, of when things occur, and anyone who's went to events of different cultures will know. That sometimes you think a party's gonna be over at one point, the party's not over till the party's over. Man. If anyone's ever went to a Nigerian wedding or almost a Nigerian anything, you know, shout out to the, the, the shout Niger out brothers. to them, man. <laughs> hey, man, and even the oh, I thought this was starting at 10:30. Nah, fam. This might not start till 1:30. <laughs> you should have took a nap. Why y'all ain't tell me? We we got here. We thought we was coming in right at the willow. We you know eleven thirty. We thought we'd come in eleven thirty. We you know be there. We'd be out. Man, that party thing ain't even get rolling yet. People was oh they're still on their way from Cleveland like type shit. Like oh, <laughs> that's right. They're still on their they're still on their way, man. So the, the timing the timing is uh is really interesting. And one part that I, I we know there'd be so much to touch on from a cultural perspective is the shift in the social climate of Saudi Arabia and then them or the king who or the crown prince that by the the idea that traditionally there was a separation of church and state in Saudi Arabia and by that means the clerical community was the last word essentially and what happens in the government, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Even though you had a king, the clerics gave rules. And that MBS is the first one that's kind of like, no, I'm actually the emir of the, of the country. And actually, here's how I perceive hadith. And for those hadith is the recording sayings of the, you know, the Prophet Muhammad and, you know I mean, uh, his four blessed uh, followers and everything, you know, but like he's the first one rereading it to be like, oh, you know what? This is what I think. Which, if you needed an example, it would kind of be like Joe Biden being like, you know, I'm a good Catholic. Here's what I think Catholicism looks like in America. <laughs> right. <laughs> like, like I know there's an archbishop or something, but uh, you know, later yeah. for all that, I'm, I'm the president. <laughs> yeah, I'm the president. Like, I mean, just the, the shift in what that looks like it means in a in a from a historical sense is a is an issue onto itself. And I guess what I would just say is the whole conversation from live and the geopolitics is even though much of our media doesn't do the job of telling us a complicated story, it is it incumbent upon us to do some deeper, you know, kind of global research to kind of understand the context of much of what we receive. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, America alternates between taking stuff in from all over the world, but then perceiving itself to be very small and hyper-local. <laughs> and we we go in between those two things, yeah. right? Yeah. We, we want food and we want clothing from everywhere in the world. We want all this stuff, but then our politics get real small. 
Um, and just for all of the listeners, and I, my assumption is that you're listening to this, you're a person that's open to li- thinking about some things a little differently. I'm damn sure we talk about things a little differently. <laughs> um, that to really kind of check out other global news outlets to to see and understand kind of geopolitics and even how it relates to sports a little differently. Um, yeah, so, I mean... The only other thing, uh, just as, as a footnote to add to, like, you know, I mentioned to you offline before we started, you know, some of the, there was a couple of local columns here about because the, because because the other, like, sort of subtext point with all of this too, well, basically, so there's like uh, Saudi citizens uh, sometimes who are definitely from, you know, privileged class folks from Saudi Arabia and there's a particular high profile case. I cannot remember the name on top, but I'll see if I can find the column, but you know, basically cat was out here going to college and doing things, um, driving fast in cars, you know, hit and run kill, you know, young woman in Southeast Portland. And before he was supposed to face trial, they scooty, scooty booty booted him up out of here. You know what I'm saying? Like on some clandestine, he was over here. They didn't know where he was at for nine hours. And then he was in Saudi Arabia. You know what I'm saying? Type time. Um, and it's been a, a ongoing, you know, advocacy thing here. And, and there's, you know, you know, not cases all as, as serious as that one. Um, though of other, you know, folks who are, you know, attached to in some way the the, the privileged classes of that society come. I mean, we could get into 9-11 and all that, but I didn't want to go that dark <laughs> today. Um, you know. But part of that um, is is this having to have a you know uh, an operational relationship with the leader of one of the largest producers of oil on the planet and the head of OPEC, and therefore all this other cascading you know decisions and impacts occur right um, and 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 all of these things are connected and then also spread out right and and, and it's not and I I think it would be great if we as a society sometimes would and more socially learn to look at the like larger implications and not like, you know, and I'm always, it's not like in a, you know, uh, I'm working on a whole rant about, I hate when people like the government, blah, 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 blah. I feel in the thing, you know, don't want you to do this. Don't want you to do that. I'm like, well, can we be specific? Because the reality is, is the way these things happen when people have leveraged power and influence within, within societies and, and, and different, you know, cross governments, cross states is because of their fulcrum to something that does what? Give them actual power and leverage in the situation. Um, and the experience of someone having leverage over you is quite frustrating. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? If you, you know, um, you know, my son recently engaging with the, you know, deal with up with his uh, driving status, you know, due to, you know, a systemic communication challenge. And and you know us going like hey I don't really know we I don't know what I don't know what our our, our action point <laughs> is to help resolve that in any faster way right um, you know that being a more benign example but uh, you know a larger more challenging example which you know we're in the midst of something where folks are trying to actively act like it had not happened you know when we talk about the history of slavery and Jim Crow in this society that you have folks who had leverage position and not just in a you know that was backed by violence. Um, and then also, though, still experiencing the reality that you have people that have, you know, leverage points over the way you want to, you know, build industry, create whatever have you for yourself. You know what I mean? And 
you know, I would say some people who are used to having more power and privilege, they don't like it when they find out there's these, oh, there's other people from another country that got more power and privilege than me. But I'm, you know, I'm a one number one of the whatever in this this county. Like, yeah, you are, but we don't care. <laughs> they from the most powerful or the, the largest, you know, like there's there's a fish bigger than you out there in the other part of the ocean. And I, I think a lot of times in our society, when the folks who are used to being the big fish realize that, you know, there's all these other fish out there in the ocean that you know, the sharks. Yeah, you know I mean, they shark. <laughs> they like, yo, man, like, yeah, you you the main man in Montana, but this ain't Montana, dog. <laughs> like, like, you ain't in Montana no more. It's a, hey, you know what? You know what, guys, just to add on to that, I think you made a very cogent point, as you usually do, um, about the idea of the man or the government or they, right? It, they could be used interchangeably in our community often. Yeah. They don't want you to be great. The man got his foot on your back or the government is doing this. It actually causes, in my estimation, intellectual sloppiness because mm-hmm. you're not naming someone. Yeah. Like, who is the origin of your challenge? Because you can't organize against the thing until you actually identify the name rank and serial number of the persons, person or persons responsible for your challenge, it actually becomes a form of like <clears throat> becoming despondent and disconnected from doing anything, man. You know how they going to do. You know, they don't want us to have nothing. Yo, you should find out who don't want you to have nothing so you can get them out your way. Right. But as long as you accept the fact that there is some, there's the blob or some formless, nameless thing out there, which connects to some other stuff to think about it, but as long as you accept there's some formless, nameless thing out there that wants to harm you and that you are okay with that, then that will can that thing will continue to exist and that privilege will continue to 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 occur. Indeed. And with that, I think that kind of opened up a nice segue to um there's a documentary. It just started or came, I think, in last week's on on uh, Showtime. Yeah. Um, the Supreme Team, which, uh, I mean, I, I, it's one of the things I'd be assuming everybody knows all these various, you know, um, <laughs> criminal organizations of different, <laughs> different eras. But I know that everybody don't know everything. But, um, you know, documentary, uh, executive produced, directed by the Nas. And um, another individual, but Nas being a person, probably most people that our generation <laughs> would know their name. Um, and uh, and it was quite interesting. Um, and I know you said you got through the first two joints. Um, and because the, the, you know, the story, you know, within that, uh, so those that don't know, the Supreme Team was a, um, a uh, drug distribution organization that became prominent in the late seventies and then in the eighties um, and uh, rose with, with the crack age and uh, was eventually uh, undermined and, and, and folks, but had a large influence on, uh, I mean, one, just the reality of the different stories that need to come out about what happened and what we experienced growing up in the eighties that I still think, like I said, I think there's still more to be written. Um, and but is the backdrop of like everybody's scary nightmare about American crime or this or that 
you know, is, is, is seated in these different um, individuals, but like these were real people. Um, and a, a, a prominent thing within at least the way the documentary tells and shares some of that story about these individuals is related to, you know, what, where drug, drug sales, you know, within the global economy, because I understand drugs, just drug sales are a global geopolitical commodity. It's a product, it's a part, and it's showing up and, and it's 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 the it's the back door. Everybody don't want to talk about it in almost every land part of the country, whether it's heroin in Central Asia, you know, coming from the poppy or the cocaine in South America, uh to the uh what's the uh, I think they grow they grow poppy, they grow cocaine somewhere else. They might do. I don't know. Well, I mean, yeah. there was some. There was one of them drugs they grow. They grow somewhere. Did you like? Oh snap! They grow. They grow that there. I mean, marijuana grows all over the place, but that's that's a different schedule. But that's in there. You know what I mean? That's in the conversation. Yeah. You know, also you know the illicit production of, of pharmaceuticals and you know and then all the stuff that's even is less spoken of. But the the fentanyl that is you know folks you know using basically you know to 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 lace other things is you know that that's being redistributed out of you know overseas manufacturers uh in you know uh you know china and other places and then you know finding its way right so when you when you start talking about but but the way we are primarily thought to talk about sort of the drug pusher right at least the concept of the drug pusher when we was kids was sort of like this idea that's like dude that's running around your neighborhood trying to like yeah, yeah, kid, try these pills. And then, like, yeah, now I got a customer. <laughs> like, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? And I watched a real funny, uh, uh, actually, I, I'll find it. Actually, I might like, put the leak. Uh, Ali Sadiq, who's a comedian I enjoy, and he has a, it's on YouTube called Domino Effect. And part of it, he talks about it. He's like, yeah, they told me that. It's like, you know, I, we don't sell it to nobody that don't want it. <laughs> he's like, to me, that seemed like a good See, like convincing sales pitch, right? But he he speaks about you know what I'm saying his own you know negative experience being engaged in, in in the pharmaceutical you know illicit pharmaceutical trade, and and the, and the harm that it did to him. I mean, and the harm that it did to our communities. But it's also like the idea that all of this centers on the us, right? Like on the community, like on the individuals, not on the giant apparatus that's behind it. You know, and you know, you know, uh, connected to it. So. Said all that to say, Supreme Team, um, the and the place I guess I would enter in, or I guess maybe I ask you, what was one of your thoughts from like the first part of the documentary that, that you saw that that stood out to you? Well, one is I think is it's interesting in that in the in you remember this just in the early two thousands there was the a rash of kind of community what I'll call community-based documentaries on a variety of characters in books, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So you had like the documentaries in the magazines like Feds and Don Diva mm-hmm. um, that kind of focused on, you know, the black kind of like, you know, uh, organizations, I'm going yeah. to for this context, right? Yeah. Because America has a romance with the Italian organizations, mm-hmm. as well as the bikers, yep. right? 
Like we have normalized a group of mugs, <laughs> the Mongols and the Hell's Angels, who ain't really normalized if you look at the history of them. Yeah. Not they are bad hombres, as uh, <laughs> right. BJT would say. They some bad hombres, right? Um, and it's also important to remember that there were black folks on that were part of those things, formations as well, yeah. which I think sometimes gets forgotten. But uh so we we have a we have an fascination with the Italian and the biker culture of this kind of like thing that is counter counterculture. And ours largely gets relegated to being blamed for the scourge. Right, right. Mm-hmm. So in the early 90s, 2000s, there was, you know, folks who did a lot of that. And then you got books like True to the Game by Terry Woods and a lot of the Black Lit joints, which, you know, True to the Game in particular was her relationship with the JBM, also known as Junior Black Mafia, mm-hmm. out of Philadelphia. Um, so you had these things. And then I think recently it kind of subsided, I think, as hip hop became less focused on authenticity. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Right. Like I think at one point, you know, we, you know, our generation of hip hop and maybe the one right after us was really all about authenticity. And then you have generations of kids, young people, younger people who that's not why they listen to somebody. Yeah. They don't know if they ever sold drugs. They don't care. Yeah. <laughs> right. In yeah. fact, they kind of like that the guy uses drugs or girl uses drugs more than sells drugs, right? right like right. That's yeah, just, they're more enamored with that than the other thing. Yeah, they're more enamored with like the emo rock star I am drugs than <laughs> I sell drugs. Right. I am yeah, you know that's a good one. <laughs> I am a drug, like you know what I mean. So anyway, but now you can see the you know, our generation having the influence and the power to be able to create these high-level documentaries that tell a story in a different ways. So I will say that I'll let to say that this documentary is well done, mm-hmm. right? Like this is well produced. Absolutely. It is a do- it is a documentary that is done giving all sides of a story, um giving context to the origin of what you see is specifically you know new york as a muse but specifically southeast queens why southeast queens the history of southeast queens and belying the fact that you had a black community largely black community um that were the largest formation of homeowners in the country for example mm-hmm. right of black homeowners in the country um, this place that was the home for Louis Armstrong and, you know, jazz artists and all these folks who would move to Queens as ways to, you know, kind of get out of Harlem and Brooklyn and the Bronx. And then it becoming it, it challenged. Right. And you and I have had conversations about what happens when neighborhoods that traditionally were one way had now become another way. Yeah. Um, and so I just thought it was really well done. I mean, the. The elephant in the room, if you will, that I'm sure everyone listens to this knows about, you know, or will watch it and understand some of the relationship between the nation of God's nerves and who some of them were members of as younger people. And, you know, the, the, the some of the decisions that they made later. But I think they did a really good job of framing. You know, as they call as Prince called it, his black power movement, his black power moment. Yeah. And how his black power moment was was looking at the murder of a 10-year-old. Yep. 
which I also think is really important to think about. Like in 1973, a 10-year-old was murdered by a cop and was found, was found, you know, not guilty. Right. Right. So the same conversations we're having today, we can have today, we're having yeah, 50, damn it, 50 years ago. And that 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 created some context. So I thought it was really well, really well produced. Um that was like my first really my first real thought about it. My second thought about it was um the you know the the role and the importance as they came to talk about it of like police. Well, I, I won't go there. I, what I'll say is this: the other part of it is how our you know black quote unquote criminal organizations or black organizations, illicit organizations are often found to be like the goofballs of the criminal world, mm-hmm. like the goof troop of the world, like you know, like the ones that can't get right. The guys that can't shoot straight, and <clears throat> watching the Supreme Team documentary, you become real clear that that this was run as an organization. This was run as a business. Yeah, like yeah. they got they got paid on Friday. Right, you know right. What right. I mean? When he's like, <laughs> we get paid on Fridays. Like you work six days a week, and then you come in Friday, you get paid. Like you know, um, so just. That idea um, and attached to that idea is the deconstruction in post-industrial American society, the fact that people were essentially creating economies within their communities to supplement the fact that there was no economy. And I think it's important to think about it. There was a certain time to have people thinking about, you know, certain levels of achievement. It wasn't that you were going to be able to go work at a factory, whether textile, steel, you know, insert industry, then take care of your family, get a Cadillac. I mean, those things became more and more out of reach and people started making decisions more and more about what they would do. But you can't separate the deconstruction of American post-industrial society to the rise of the Supreme Team, um, you know, or the rise of these things happening in cities all across the country, actually. Yeah. Well, and and, and, I, and I thought it was, you know, appropriate to this conversation because, you know, although, you know, the, the, uh, the gray economy as it pertains to the American illicit drug trade is not necessarily, it's not... <laughs> It's not the same thing as a um, autocratic, you know, totally not respecting the concept of civil or human rights state. But it ain't that far off. <laughs> like, it ain't the same thing. I hear y'all. Right. It ain't that far off, right? And and as we've had in our conversations, and I, and I think it's important to give context, um, one, uh, uh, to my knowledge, in my, my 46 years of life, in uh, whatever number at least that I was aware enough of the drug trade and that and people using drugs, I've never heard. I've heard of the prices being high. I've heard of maybe it being not good product in the street, but I ain't never heard of a day that wasn't no illicit drug somewhere. So mm. despite all of this, you know, people locking up, people going, duh, 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 seems like stuff just keeps on flowing, right? And 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 there's a there's a challenge within that to me as a whole society for us to have a bit like to think about right just to, just a frame not to, you don't got to make a point just to think about like 
these men went to, you know, with, you know um, the, 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 now, though, the other thing I think that, and they speak about it in, in the documentary a bit about that. Uh, one of the journalists even particularly speak, like, frames it about the, you know, the progression of mm-hmm. ethnic uh, mm-hmm. criminal entities. You know what I'm saying? Like, you know, the Irish mob, the Jewish mob, the Italian mob, you know, other, you know, he kind of, he doesn't name other ones, but he names those three. And then he like, kind of like, you know, like these guys, this was like, this was they, this was they window. This was they one. You know what I'm saying? Like, um, and the history of that, of that, those communities were sometimes able to, the aspect of those communities that were involved in those things, because I know everybody was not involved in those things, but the positionality within, especially this society, that the folks who would end up sometimes mm-hmm. engaged in the gray economy are those who cannot, you are not allowed access in in the other economy, right? They're not able, so you make, you know, you're not necessarily that you want to, but sometimes you got to figure out how to make a deal with like, well, you know, like, you know, uh, like you say on Martin, like, Tommy, you ain't got no job. You know what I'm saying? Like, we all supposed to read between the lines. Tommy sells dope. <laughs> in case everybody in America, in case you was watching Martin and you didn't understand the Tommy ain't got no job joke. <laughs> It's time it was in it was in trading and recent commodities training, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> you know, quote unquote allegedly or whatever. Right. But this is and I thought it was really poignant actually through the documentary because the way it's structured and what I thought about was really good is they don't try to like it doesn't it doesn't speak about what, what they were doing and as if it was like, you know, yeah, man, you know, that's what you do. It was like, nah, like, yo, we sell drugs and and particularly drug that we kind of fucked up. The, this shit should, like fucked up the community. Like this shit harmed um, society, it harmed our could be hard harmed where, I, where we came up. You know, we all, you know, we didn't totally grasp the ramifications, you know, of, of all of these decisions. And I, I thought that uh, the, the tone of the storytelling, and I think it's really important to tell the story. Right, because it can't. This stuff can't all be the, the stuff of myth and legend, right? Like, it, like we do actually have a there's a there's a value to like understanding, like, yo, what were you doing, right? And even the piece, and I think if you got through the first two, like, you know, getting to the the, the murder uh, and, and the killing of Officer Byrne, and that that you know, despite all the harm that <laughs> crack sales were having on the community, that is the point where larger entities decided something had to be done about these folks. So the, the wells of hardship of the community weren't enough. You know what I'm saying? Like, this is the context that yeah. we operate in, right? And I ain't saying well, well, that yeah. that's wrong. I'm just saying it's a reality is that, like, Black folks will be like, yo, man, it's just, you know, motherfuckers is open here, it's selling dope over there. Like, what, what, what are we going to do? You know what I'm saying? It is like, well, well you know, we, we all going to just police all of y'all harder. You know what I mean? But not actually do any, not really figure it, you know, was no, you know, uh, and even when they brought up like Koch, I forgot that Koch, you know, was on that about like, you know, the U.S. embargo in these states that produce, you know what I'm saying, the countries that produce the, the produce the drugs. <laughs> like, yeah. you know, the cocaine don't grow here. Like, we know where the cocaine come from and y'all are not doing anything to stop it. Right. Like, we know where the heroin is grown on Earth <laughs> and it still somehow finds its way. You know what I'm saying to 125th Street. You know what I'm saying still finds his way to you know to Jamaica. You know to Jamaica Queens. Like it's a very, you know, I, I would think some folks they might would maybe listen to this and think that I'm you know, that you're making space or making. A, I'm not making a reservation. I'm saying 
if the individual who are at the, the endpoint distribution there, they wrong, but also whoever they getting it from is wrong. <laughs> like there's a whole lot of other wrongs here. And we have to, we as a society need to engage, like what is our structures? How did we get here? And even to know what really like the stuff that really went on in the eighties, <laughs> cause it'd be like, you know, it'd be like, Oh, well, you know, if you let, you let, you know, the, 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 just say no. And, and, and the drug dealers, oh, again, like they're the lizard man, like they're not real people. It's like, right. nah, man, like there was something else happening here. And it, it's in our best interest to understand that and not just to make it this like stuff of, well, don't bad people do drugs. So don't do them and don't talk about why it happened. It's like, nah, cause y'all people in here are addicted to all sorts of stuff right now. We need to understand. Well, well, that's, that's the thing I wanted to add on is that if you look at our, and, and I will be, I'll be liberal here and say, hey, maybe people just, we learn from our mistakes. But two things I realized with our current um, opioid crisis, because it is a crisis, is one, you know, now if you found anything with fentanyl in it, they're going to what in, in our parlance just, they're going to roof you. Meaning they're going to give you a whole bunch of prison time. But also in America, we actually figured out that we have to actually get to the people who actually created the drugs. So, you know, the Department of Justice has gone after the creators of the opioids that got out and harmed people and found and find them billions and billions of dollars. Because we recognize that you had to actually get to the top of the conversation, right? Mm-hmm. Well, the challenge is we never get to the top of the illicit thing. We always stay at the bottom of the illicit thing. Where right. for opioids, we figured out how to do the point of supply as well as the broader supply conversation. So I think it's, to your point, whether we choose to make space or not make space, you, your your bigger point of like it has never stopped. Meaning, if you took the individual out of the thing, somebody would come and do the thing, right? And that would be people of all races. It wouldn't just be one particular race. People of all races would step in and do the thing because we're not going to talk about the level of despair in American society, which I think is downplayed. But there's also the economy of America, which the economy of America doesn't make space for everybody coming out of high schools with general equivalency diplomas or a high school diploma that is just that is equal to that. It just doesn't. And any workforce conversation you're going to hear at some point, you recognize that the skills that American businesses need. And the talents that people are producing out of schools are not aligned. Right. So my point about that is eventually someone acknowledging that their skills that they've learned and sat in, sat in various rooms for 12 or 15 years, you know, whatever many years, does not prepare them for higher education or to function in American society in the way that we're talking about, and especially, frankly, given inflation that he was looking at, now it ain't about making $10. You got to make $15, $20 an, uh, an hour mm-hmm. to really, really be able to take care of yourself in, a, in any kind of context of a family, right? Yeah. And so I, I just think there's a, 
there's a bigger picture from the documentary um, that you do get. Um, and, and what I'll, I'll stop this, you, you know, looking at the, you know, what I would call the creative destruction of American society. How did you get to a place where 20 year olds and 25 year olds were literally running million dollar organizations? Mm -hmm. Like what had broken down to the point where that had actually occurred? And and have we ever really asked ourselves about how that occurred? And, you know, this is unpopular. I don't think everybody that sells drugs is a uh, business wizard. Oh, no. <laughs> I think I'm some right. of I, <laughs> right. that off. Right. I am not of that. I am not of that estimation. You, I'm not going to take every hustler and say, "Oh man, all you have to do is put him in the in a business school, and he would have ran Sitgo, or he would have ran AT and T. He wouldn't have ran AT and T, though. Just like the guy sitting in the mail room doesn't run LT AT T. He wouldn't have ran AT and T. <sighs> but my point is, what occurred, and when you think about it to this day, I mean, you have the Supreme Team, you have. Free Rick, uh, Freeway Rick Ross out of L.A. Um, you have what was happening in Chicago. N- n- no names, no blames. You had a JBM. You you have all Rayful Edmond and Tony Lewis in D.C. Every city, you know, Miami had 15 of them. <laughs> you have all these guys. And all yeah, them banks they got in Miami that can't nobody explain. But I ain't going to bring that up. I'm going to just keep well, on again. pushing <laughs> Listen, they have created a new neighborhood called Brickle. And if you and everyone ever goes to Brickle, you will see that there's only two things in Brickle. Banks and high-rise buildings. That's the only thing that exists in Brickle. And there are a whole bunch of banks, to your point, that no one knows where this money is from. And it's no accident that now Miami is the is like becoming a tech hub. Like you took a swamp and created it into a tech hub, and it only took money to do that. And great weather. Don't don't misunderstand me. (laughs) Great weather, too. But my point is, like, it kind of goes to your point. There's an underpinning of a lot of stuff in America that is not as nearly as clean as we would like it. Yeah. Yeah. And it's just important to tell the story in a way that human, I'm going to say, when I say humanizes, supreme and prince or humanizes the conditions or humanizes it it really brings to bear here's where the things that were happening and then you make a uh, kind of look today and say well what's happening today and if we changed almost anything from a young person who had a black power moment when they saw someone else killed and not go to jail but didn't have the best way to express it Right. Did, did you know, are we supporting the places where young people learn to have the awareness and knowledge of themselves? Like, are we are we fostering that or are we fostering places, frankly, that our children get dumber and dumber? Mm-hmm. Right. And so I, what I take from, you know, besides the private stock of, you know, what we would discuss about the Supreme team is what I take from. <laughs> the documentary for kind of broader awareness is just like, how does this happen? And 
what is different that would happen today than how they did that? And the last thing I say is this. I think a lot of times about uh, uh, the head of a black enterprise, right? Earl Graves. And I think about how Earl Graves worked tirelessly to support black business and black business leaders. And I think that it, it it's a, I'm going to say it's a travesty that when we think about black people who ran businesses in the last 40 to 50 years, we run into folks who ran illicit organizations and rappers. Right. We don't talk about all any of the other. We don't talk about all the business folks who did things. I think it's just we we're making a real challenge when we go from Supreme to to the AZ to you know Aaron Jones to Rayful and then to Jay-Z. Yeah. Oh, hold Sorry. on a quick guy. Yeah. Yeah. And we don't like we we weirdly don't have I I mean obviously Earl Grays and Black Enterprise have, have tried to hold it down, but we have not developed a I think a sufficient narrative to go like ah man, I mean, even if you go back to what's my man, um AG, what's his name? You know what I'm saying? Uh, the under, uh, you know, supporting AG Gaston, AG Gaston, and uh, these, you know, folks who, you know, ran businesses and even in most people's cities, like who, you know, and I actually thought that was a, a, a nice note within the um, the story when they, the, the, the family Griffin, the, the contracting family, you know what I'm saying? And touching on, like, look, man, we was out here trying to run the, legit businesses and you know I, I, I mean they didn't go all into it but we know that construction is you know racially ethically captured <laughs> in in the greater greater New York area um, right like all of these factors play into the experience and then like you know our own framing where we'll sometimes we we're like we will almost believe the same like the, the tape that yeah like them people are the only people that was prominent you know what I'm saying I mean I think LL said try to say well like like i i know i know now that what i was seeing with them was not really the only indicators of success but in my my understanding of it then i thought i was seeing like you know what i'm saying clear success you know what i'm saying being being in the spot with them and 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 the and the, and the social cultural cachet that they had within within a space that was a very black space like it wasn't that wasn't like a, a public that wasn't everybody's space Right. And so it's 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 a weird, there's a lot of pieces there, but there is a piece of like, yo, we still ain't really doing a good enough job talking about, you know, black folks sort of, you know, social, you know, business impact. Um, well, yeah, because we did because again, we went from hustlers to 
to, I mean, you know, I think we had a brief thing like, look at Russell Simmons, Master B. And then it was like, Jay-Z, all these guys. And, and again, what we do is always say, but they were involved in the street life, right? right? So we're framing for people that business success comes from that. And now we jumped, you know, unfortunately to the, to the crypto space. Uh, I, you know, now I know we might not get supported by crypto.com or hey man, crypto, crypto wants to send me some funny money. <laughs> <laughs> I ain't trying to talk about it to shut down us getting some money from them, but we jumped immediately to then, like, now people talk about being successful in, in companies are like people doing crypto trading, right? Whereas, like, shout out to everybody. That's doing well, and I hope this crypto winter isn't harming you. Um, right. <laughs> but, like, again, sometimes the messages we tell ourselves can be as damaging or more damaging than the messages we've been told. And I think around business and opportunity, um, it's an example that we have to tell ourselves, like, a different story. And even if it means that Nas is executive producing via his media company on Showtime to tell a story in a good way and in a professional, nuanced, thoughtful way that no one else can tell. We should celebrate that and see that as success versus just to like, who's the person who seems the richest, you know? I think he said it it very well right there because, um, yeah, like there's still more stories to be told of that age and the age in our you know generations kind of coming to where we at now. But I think that this is a really good, you know, it's a good piece. It's a good, it's a good, it's a good foundational piece. I, I feel like it was a very um honest and you know, I think generally fair, you know, assessment of the of the story. And um even even with, with your man uh, Mayor Adams in there. Just, just, just yip yapping about about various things. You know what I'm saying? And, uh, it's very <laughs> I interesting. Mary Adams guy. <laughs> it's very interesting, man. It's very interesting too. And even the, like it was a lot of little nuances, like the judge, like how to hit the judge and what to find that they was two basically two blocks from each other. Yeah, that's craziness, right? Like, and they didn't even know. <laughs> Right, which gets into a whole other thing where I'd be like, you know, people be like, yeah, you from here? We know everybody. But like, y'all be knowing everybody in your damn neighborhood. Maybe all kind of people live close. You don't know who live over there. Yeah. And, and anywhere in America, somebody you think you know lives close and you don't know that they live, that actually who live over yeah. there. Yeah, knowing everybody is, is something from a time past. Like, that's just not, and especially in dense places. Yeah. Like, you just don't know everybody, right? There are some places you could be like, hey, someone there's four houses on the street and I know all four people, but I don't know the cousin that lived with y'all. So no, I think you're right. And I think the six degrees of separation, one thing I'll say about uh, my man, Swashbuckling Mayor Adams, uh, <laughs> is I think it shows you these degrees of separation that now exist where the mayor of a global city was once a member of a gang called the seven crowns <laughs> like if we just sit if we sit with that for a minute itself like the proximity that he had and talking about prince and is supreme and being like oh prince said that like he like he wasn't he wasn't calling by his honorable name he was calling by his righteous name like oh prince said that yeah man that, that hurt me too like 
I mean, there's just something, there's a bigger picture there about, again, globalization and how the world in some ways has become really big, but yet really small. And we just have to sometimes acknowledge our role in those spaces. Yeah. Absolutely. So, so with that, you know, I think we, we said enough. We can say more at a later date. You know what I mean? So, um, man, I appreciate you. Anything for the Appreciate you, too, my brother. Everything's good. Yeah, all's good. So that I say, peace. Peace. Thank you for listening to Good Brothers. Thank you to my good brother, Majestic. Uh, thank you for listening. Please like, rate, subscribe, share. Uh, feel free to use any of the social media vehicles to send some questions or thoughts back. Uh, you know, it's an interactive medium if we engage in it. So best way to support the podcast is by sharing it so please share far and wide also you can uh, become a patron you know search justice raji on patreon and sign up you can also go to the etsy shop which has nothing new in there at the moment but it will be changing soon so you know if you buy a sweatshirt or a t-shirt you know you directly funding the creative realities I'm going to stop playing games and I'm going to go ahead and wrap this episode up. But we'll be back and um, I will be back very soon. So, peace.